Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Robert Edwards, co-founder and CEO of Solar Polar. Solar Polar is a leading innovator in solar technology. And what Solar Polar does is develop these solar thermal cooling systems that have these broad, highly critical use cases. Everything from medicine and vaccine storage in the developing world to reducing crop and food wastage for farmers across the African continent. And in the episode, Robert and I will discuss how exactly a paper published by the World Health Organization sparked the initial eureka moment for Solar Polar, the key innovation that is their solar thermal cooling system, in what areas this innovation could be applied from vaccines, crop storage, and even in public and private buildings, his time at the UK's Department of Energy and Climate Change, and finally, the one big idea rotting away in his idea graveyard. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Robert Edwards, co-founder and CEO of Solar Polar. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi, it's lovely to meet you and greetings from London. <laughs> greetings from New York City as well. Robert, let's start with the basics. What is Solar Polar? Solar Polar, it's a company I'm one of the founder members of. We started a number of years ago looking into if we could produce cooling using the sun. It's, uh, it's not a new concept, but uh, patents go back a hundred and odd years. But so I met up, I design, I'm an engineer, I design solar panels and uh, I met a refrigeration engineer and it all started from there. So what we're trying to do is basically produce products that do what we take for granted in the sort of Western world that you can switch on the air conditioning or open your refrigerator and you've got cold things, but could you do that without without using electricity or gas? Wow. Um, as I was perusing across your site, one of the first solutions in which this manifests is the med box. And I think this is uniquely interesting now given what the world just experienced with COVID. So can we talk through how the Medbox solution works and how exactly you've leaned into solar as the kind of activating or enabling mechanism here? Yes, you're, you're quite right. Solar vaccine refrigeration was one of the first applications for our solar cooling technology that we looked at because we read a report by the World Health Organization to say, obviously, they're starting out from the point of view that without vaccines across the world, before COVID anyway, lots of people were dying unnecessarily from, again, diseases that don't, don't really exist in our countries anymore. And, but because they couldn't have refrigeration, they couldn't get the, couldn't get the products to where they, this, as you say, is highlighted even more with COVID and the need to vaccinate the whole world and not until everybody's vaccinated will we really get on top of the whole thing. But when we read this report, we're engineers, we skipped past the medical bit and we read the bit that said the average life in service of a vaccine refrigerator was 18 months and they either broke down and there wasn't the local skill set to repair them or somebody would pinch the solar panels or they would take the battery for the scrap lead inside it and things like that. So apparently the developing world is somewhat littered with old solar fridges. And what we set about doing was trying to produce a very cheap version because a vaccine refrigerator can be anywhere between three and $7,000. And then you've got to get it to where it needs to be. So we thought if we could produce one for 300 to $700, then 
<laughs> and make it out of a system where the component parts weren't quite so valuable to make them to make people not want to pinch them basically so we ended up designing a solar thermally driven system so our cooling system entirely runs on solar heat as opposed to any electricity so just to go back a step depending on how much you know about solar there are basically two types of solar there is solar photovoltaics or PV, which is where you're converting the sun's energy into electricity. And then there's solar thermal, which is where you're collecting the sun's energy as heat. And normally, domestically, you would use that to heat your hot water, that sort of thing. What we do is we collect it as heat, but we operate at far higher temperatures than you would for a domestic hot water system. And we use that to run a fusion absorption refrigeration system, which is what you would find in a hotel minibar. It's a, an ammonia water refrigeration system. Wow. Robert, I think it'd be remiss on my part to overlook how exactly you got here. Most people don't read these types of, of papers and then have both the eureka moment, so the kind of the broader wherewithal to understand the opportunity here. So for the listeners, Robert is... When people say expert, I put that in air quotes, you blow the kind of average understanding of what it means to be an expert on all things solar, but more, more specifically, just problem solving, things of this kind. So if we rewind to your professional and academic history pre-solar polar, uh, can you just briefly explain where the early inklings of your obsession and fascination with this area of engineering start? I would be going back many years. Uh, I really, <laughs> I started my working life in the theatre, doing lighting and video for shows and stuff like that. I didn't actually uh, end up going into academia until I was in my early 30s, where I did an engineering design degree. I then went on to do a master's and then Finally, I did my PhD looking at wave energy, so converting the ocean waves into renewable energy. And mm -hmm. I think this is really where my interest in renewables and how, sorry, do, where my interest in renewable energy came from. And how can we harness sort of nature to produce the energy we need? At the same time, I was working for a company called Solar Century, which was one of the first sort of photovoltaic solar installers. And I ended up designing some systems for them. And that's really where the, the interest in solar started. Mm -hmm. And uh, I developed a solar roof tile system that could both be photovoltaic or solar thermal because what we were finding a lot in the UK is you have a lot of what they call listed houses which means you can't change the look of the outside of them and a lot of people found that solar panels bolted to the roof and stuff was fairly ugly so we designed a, an entire roof tile system that would that would to blend the panels se seamlessly into to the roof so you couldn't see them mm -hmm. so that's really where and that was this is back in the early 2000s and this it was a, an award-winning product and things like that i went on i worked for companies that did natural ventilation so this is where you're using your you, you've got a smart ventilation system that says oh it's actually it's cooler outside than it is inside so we'll start bringing the cool air through or overnight when it's cool actually physically bringing the cool air to cool the core of the building down and using that rather than air conditioning and then this sort of led through to understanding the the potential of solar thermal because what you what people, when they think of solar, they think of photovoltaic panels, the the little the panels on the roof. But actually, in the world of solar, if you're looking at the amount of energy that a solar panel can convert into something useful, broadly, a photovoltaic cell will do 10, 12% of the sun's energy. There are, you know, there are lab-based systems that will do more. 
But actually, a well-designed solar thermal system can be tra- changing 50 to even up to 80, 90 percent of the sun's energy into something useful. And that's where the, the use of thermal comes in, because you mm-hmm. need a much smaller area. It's also an awful lot cheaper. And you don't have to grow crystal cells or print them on a substrate because what we're looking at here is countries. We have demonstration systems in India and later this year we'll be out in Kenya with one. We want people to be able to manufacture them locally. There's no there's no point in making millions of them in the UK and shipping them around the world because, again, you have this thing where there isn't the local skill set to fix it or or install it that kind of mm-hmm. thing so if you make it locally then you have the local skill set so we got to the point where we've designed a system where if you could weld together a bicycle frame you could basically make our coolers wow i can see the timelines are quite interesting too because it looked like you start your your doctorate in 2005 and then this paper that you speak to must have started must have been published at some point in 2007 because midway through your PhD it's when you and your team say eh, we should solve this challenge <laughs> i would i would like to i would like to say that we'd identified all of the markets before we leapt in and tried to make a solar cooling system <laughs> but engineers being engineers we go hey have you seen the temperatures we can get out of this thing <laughs> maybe we could run a cooler with it and then once you've had the idea and you made it work you then think Ooh, now who would be interested in buying this? And that's when you start. You start basically looking at. I, I would love to say that 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 all of the world's needs were our were at the forefront of our mind when we went out to invent it. But actually, truth be told, we had invented it. We were engineers playing with new ideas and technologies, uh-huh. and it happened to have some very useful sort of spin-offs to it. So, but like many areas of research, a lot of the great research and inventions and things of the world have come about because you were looking for something different. You were trying to find a cure for I don't know, cure for one disease. And actually, it turns out that you produce a drug that is actually more effective at curing something else. Or so, But that's the joy of academia and research is a lot of times you don't know exactly where the thing you're researching is going to end up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a, such a, a fascinating observation. In my world, I make card games. Oh, wow. And most of how we approach the initial ideation process is we, we look for some type of theme that interests us. We'll scroll on social and we'll, we'll see some type of, of funky challenge or silly trend and look to apply the historical play format against it. Judge's Choice, a Russian Roulette, and then you just have theme on top of it. And most of the time to what you just said is you end up play testing format A and the <laughs> people that you play with make the kind of pivotal suggestion that you said, wow, let's scrap version A all to get together because this is way more interesting. Yes, it's often the way that because you are so close to the idea that you're developing that it takes that person, somebody completely removed from it who looks over your shoulder and says oh wouldn't it be <laughs> wouldn't you be better off or oh, that would make a cool one of these and you say oh yes <laughs> why hadn't i thought of that but it, it's because you're living and breathing it that you tend sometimes not to see an obvious what's the word an obvious other use for a product or mm-hmm. a, a process or a game as in your case and i'm sure when people play your games if you leave them to play without you being there when you come back you've probably found that they've they're doing it slightly differently or they found uh-huh. a different of approaching the game or adding something to it i remember many years ago friends of mine used to play trivial pursuit and they had modified the game in as much as if you landed on the same square as somebody else 
and you answered a question of the correct color, you could take a piece of their pie or cheese, whatever it was, from their counter. So instead of it just being you go round and you answer it and you get all the little segments in and then you win, they could actually, it became a bit more competitive that if you caught up with them and answered the question, you could take one of theirs. So uh-huh. uh, all of us, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> the standard rules and all of a sudden become a bit more competitive. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you've teed me up quite easily here around this notion of identifying use cases by accident. And of course, as solar polar exists today, the med box is just one of a few solutions that you and your team have brought to life. What I should explain is the cooling system itself is modular. So we produce a cooling module that produces at peak about 200 watts of cooling. And then we join the modules together to match the cooling load. So if you have a med box, a a vaccine refrigerator, you would have probably two to four of our cooling modules together and that would be connected to a vaccine refrigerator. If you were to cool a 40-foot ISO shipping container that's insulated, you'd probably be looking at 15 of these modules joined together. So the modules themselves and the solar collectors don't change. And this is where we get the economies of scale is Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what we're trying to cool down. It's the same core modules all the way through. You just have more or less of them depending on the load. So we would have 15 of them connected to a, a shipping container, maybe 17 to 20 on the roof of a well-insulated property, and that would air condition the property. So it's there's 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 a lot there's a lot to it, but mm-hmm. the core module itself is a very simple design. That's the key puzzle piece. So how exactly does that puzzle piece enable the crop reducing food and crop wastage use case? There's a number of things. There was a carrier did a very interesting bit of research into on-farm cooling where they looked at the the income multipliers for a farmer in the developing world if he had on-farm cooling because there's a number of there's a there's a number of uh, things that come into play for example you'll have seen refrigerated trucks that move frozen goods or cooled goods from the factory to the shop or collect them from the farm the mm. thing though with those trucks is they can't actually cool anything down they can only take stuff that's already cold and keep it cold. They don't have the the refrigeration capacity to actually reduce the the temperature. So if a farmer doesn't have farm cooling on his farm, then he can only put it in a truck that's unrefrigerated and then it's bounced down the road to somewhere, then it ends up in, in a place to be refrigerated. So that has to be quite local. The other problem you've got is, say, for let's say, for example, you're growing mangoes. All of the mangoes come ripe at the same time in a country. So the market for mangoes is all of a sudden swamped with more mangoes than they can sell and the price drops through the floor. So although you've been growing them all year, all of a sudden the price of mangoes has dropped. So there, there are all these things that happen. So if you can refrigerate them on your farm, you can hold on to the mangoes until the price has gone back up when the initial batches have been sold. You're then selling them at a better price. Because they can be collected in a refrigerated truck and taken further afield, again, they you, you get a better price. They're refrigerated, so they're in better they're, they're better quality. So that gives you another boost in price. So the fact that you're selling them later, you're selling them further away, you're selling them as better quality, so you've got and you've had less spoilage. So these can add up to an eight to tenfold multiplier to the farmer's income for a year. Wow. It reminds me in many ways of uh, another guest we've had on the show, Appeal Sciences. Are, are you familiar with them? 
I can't say I am. Tell me about them. Appeal takes, they're solving a similar problem, but take a different approach by applying this plant-based coating to produce that extends the healthy, right, consumable life cycle of said produce by two to three X. And they're another Gates-funded venture based here in the States. But one of the kind of core customer stories that they speak of is in also, I think they work with it's either the Kenyan government or Nigerian, but one of the stories that they speak about is transporting produce from point A to point B, truck breaks down on the side of the road, and all the produce goes to waste. Yeah. But then you look at a portion of the produce that was sprayed with this you know, plant-based coating, good to go. Yeah. And it just speaks to imagine some perfect world where you have this amalgamation of solar, polar plus appeal like solutions that help us reduce crop wastage in significant ways. And then more specifically, really help the farmers behind the produce, like you said, multiplying their year, their yield and their yearly income. By how much did you say? It can be between eight and ten fold. So it's an enormous- life changing. Well, and that's a life changing difference. Oh yes, yeah, and and to their village, there's more money in the village. There's more money in the town. There's, you know, it, it becomes a very virtuous thing. And as you, you mentioned, crops there, but it's also same for the dairy farmers. If you milk your cows twice a day and you don't have any method of refrigerating it, if the truck doesn't turn up, then all of that's wasted. And obviously, uh, people find other uses for it. If you're in India, you will find a lot of the candy they have is milk-based. And they have paneer, which is a cheese that that a lot of people eat in, in their curries. And that's made from the waste milk as well. But that's, that doesn't get the dairy farmer as much money as he would have done if it was fresh, good quality milk. But, you know, obviously it's not completely going to waste. But, uh, but yes, there's a, there's a, a all of the farmers, because we take totally for granted the fact that at, at the farm level, this stuff will be refrigerated. It will be picked up in a refrigerated truck. It will be taken to wherever it's bottled or packaged. It then You then pick it up and you take it home and you put it into your refrigerator at home. If you don't have a refrigerator at home and it's you live in a hot place, you have to shop for every meal. You mm-hmm. can't keep anything fresh. So imagine in a country where you have to get up early, go to the market, buy yourself something for breakfast, come back, Oof. prepare it for the family. And then mid-afternoon, you're back off down to the market to get something for lunch or the evening meal. And if you just give somebody a refrigerator, it enables them to store, what, three, five days worth of food. And that backwards and forwards, the the person having to do it is then freed up to undertake education or job or farming or whatever it happens to be. They're not just spending their life backwards and forwards just trying to get fresh produce to feed the family. I want to, before we actually dive into a, a couple of the questions I, I have about solar polar and what you're working on, there's a, a very interesting part of your professional timeline that I keep scrolling back to here. And it's around 2012, you've been operating and directing Solar Polar for quite a few years. And my guess is you have either this unique opportunity or an invitation from the UK's Department of Energy and Climate Change. And this is, I'm, I'm reading on, on what you did there, but working for the government's chief scientific advisor. And so I, my question for you is, can you just demystify what happens at this point in your kind of professional journey. Why do you decide to join the team there? What was the the really fascinating or interesting fire in your belly there? What, what was really the big opportunity there? I don't know if you've ever read the book Sustainability Without the Hot Air. Mm-hmm. It was written by a guy called David Mackay, who was a Cambridge physicist. 
And uh, he listened to a lot of people talking on the radio and the television about climate change, how much energy everything used. And uh, as I say, he was a physicist and he wrote the book. And it is a fantastic book in as much as it puts some very simple numbers to solar energy, nuclear energy, how much energy your home uses, you name it, aeroplanes. He, he went into everything. So mm-hmm. you could get an idea of the scale that a problem you, your car might be causing or flights might cause. And he put some very simple numbers to it. And the government employed him as the, their chief scientific advisor in the Department of Energy and Climate Change. When David uh, started there, he wanted a team of engineers. And I applied thinking, there's no way on earth they're going to give me a job there. Because I knew his book. I admired his work. Uh, It had never been a great desire of mine to work for the government. But the opportunity to work with him and to guide the country in their response to climate change was an amazing opportunity. So I went along. I interviewed for the position. uh, I took the exam. and, And basically, I really walked away from there thinking, no, I, I reckon I've blown that. And they phoned me up two days later and said, yep, come on. So I wow. formed, I was one of 12 engineers. We were all from very different uh, disciplines. And so for the department, I headed up uh, solar cooling, but also wow. wave and tidal and things like this. So I was working, we, we would go up to Orkney in Scotland and see the Palamas, which was the big sea snake thing, and try and support them best we could. You're feeding information into the government, but obviously governments have other other things that sway i'm trying to be polite sure. here <laughs> but, sure. you know they have they have financial considerations and other political things and and so obviously uh, the recommendations you make they don't always follow but it was a fascinating i was there for three years and i got an amazing insight i, I went to china as part of the iea group and i traveled all over met fascinating people and it was great fun but at the end of three years I decided that actually Solar Polar really needed my full-time attention because up until that point we were really doing it at weekends and mm-hmm. after work and and whenever we could uh, find some time to build prototype units and test them and things were moving in the right direction so I thought three years in the department I'd had enough at that point and I just thought let's give it a try. <laughs> Uh-huh. What, out of curiosity, reflecting back on your time there, is there a particular milestone you're proud of or what is the kind of single great success story that you cherish through to this day? Uh, that's a hard one in just three years at the department because mm-hmm. what you have to remember is we were working at the time towards 2025 and 2050 timelines <laughs> so mm-hmm. we were we were trying to put in place stuff that was that was for the future but some of the things that I was proud of I was part of the innovation team and part of that was about assessing companies and putting money in to support them so wow. for example I was part of the team we did uh, naked energy which has gone on to do a sort of a photovoltaic thermal hybrid system so it was great to watch them grow and they're now out selling their products so so for example there was them there were a number of people we did there was a kite energy company whose name now immediately escapes me who who were doing sort of wind power but by having two kites one one flying out and the other flying in and that in turn turning a generator so there were lots of fascinating projects that the government was supporting in the early stage to see and i think that was supported by shell as i recall but yeah so so the um being in, helping other early stage companies was 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 an eye opener and i for example the naked energy guys i still talk to them to this day Wow. So if you zoom back into solar polar today, there's a couple other use cases that I find remarkably interesting, primarily of which 
pertain to buildings. This is the last kind of featured use case for the cooling system you've developed. And I know there's a, there's actually quite a few that are still in the pipeline, but can you speak through the cooling systems application as it pertains to buildings? Yes. Yeah. It's the same modular system, but we would connect to the house's ventilation system. The hardest question is always, how many cooling units does it take to cool a house and mm-hmm. the, the, the problem with that question is there's always the how much insulation has your house got <laughs> how big a house is it where is it how hot is it outside how cold do you want it inside so it's a very difficult question to answer as a oh 20 <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing because the, do you get sunshine because we have been to very hot parts of the world where there's actually comparatively very little sunshine so so yes but i i think what we do is we oversize the cooling system so that during the day it's producing and storing cold so that keeps you going overnight or for periods when you don't have enough sunshine to run the cooling system Again, you need to have a fairly well-insulated property and sunshades on the windows. So if you've got direct sunlight, you can, bl- you can overcome these by putting more cooling modules on, but that's not really what you want to do. What you want to do is make your house as energy efficient as you can and then try and cool it down. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where we're coming from because so much of the world's energy goes in cooling buildings. And as the world warms up, it will only get worse and it will become a bit of a vicious cycle in as much as and this is what happens in cities is when the person in the apartment below puts an air conditioning unit in it's got that box on the wall outside rejecting the heat from the building and then the person who lives above who might have had their window open the heat's then going in through their window Mm -hmm. and a lot of times you get what's called the heat island effect which is where you get a a densely populated area of a city centre and you've got all the air conditioners pumping the heat out. The ground is heating up just because of the sunshine and it becomes that much hotter just in that area. And as I say, then everybody buys an air conditioning unit and you can hardly go outside. So we were in New Orleans for, we were talking with the Make It Right project there and you looked out at the hotel window and all you could see over the rooftops were just thousands of these fan systems whirring away and you'd lie in bed and you just think, all you can hear is the noise of fans. It's, it was extraordinary. But, you know, I guess anybody who's been in New Orleans knows the temperature and the humidity uh-huh. levels. You you can't live without them. <laughs> but, uh-huh. uh, but, yeah, but wouldn't it be nice if you could replace those with a system that was silent and didn't use any electricity? Yeah. You got my wheels turning. Open-ended question for you. If you had the power of... God of sorts, right? You could wave your hand and redesign cities as they exist today because it feels like many of the things and the characteristics that you speak of are principal problems. You have tall skyscrapers that are effectively massive windows. And so, of course, you're going to have to spend more on cooling systems because you're letting in all the heat. So, I'm curious. Leaning into some of the first principle understandings of how we can come to appreciate and preserve heat and cooling respectively, what are these? What are the kind of core mistakes we can learn from if we were to d- design cities from the ground up that could help us lean into some of the kind of native advantages of built environments versus leaning into a thousand unit fanning systems, etc. I, I think, and I would, in some cities, I would hate to go anywhere near with redesigning. I'm just thinking of the likes of Cambridge and Oxford and uh-huh. there's parts of London which are absolutely beautiful. There's parts that are absolutely hideous as well. But, but it, it would be very difficult. But I think what we need to look towards, if I were you, is... What we're doing at the moment is the hot water, cooling, heat, space heating, everybody's doing it individually. 
So every house has an air conditioning unit and every house has a hot water tank and every house has a central heating system. And in that way, we're all doing our own thing. We're all we're all burning coal, sorry, <laughs> burning gas or I suppose coal in open fires. But yes, if but if you really wanted to do it, you should really in the same way as water gets to the property, we should just pipe it in underground. So you would have a cold source, you would have a heat source, and you would bring that in and then run it through a heat exchanger to either get the hot or the cold into the building itself. And then that way you can have a large, efficient building somewhere that's actually producing the hot and the cold. And that can be a combination of solar and and other. If you produce hot or cold on a large scale, you can do it very efficiently. It's only when you get, and as I say, you can supplement that then with solar or solar energy. Uh, If you look at the efficiencies of cooling systems, if you have a unit that you put in the window and you just close it down, that will use an enormous amount of power, whereas a central heat and air system will actually give you much more cooling but is is a little more efficient and then you've got Mm -hmm. heat pumps and you know there are lots of but it's about designing them well so if you were just trying to heat a property in the uk it's fairly easy there are a few sizes of boilers and you there's an approximate rule of thumb as to how big that (laughs) boiler needs to be whereas if you're looking to cool it or to run a heat pump or something then sizing it correctly there's quite an art to it because you you could actually make something that's actually very inefficient and very expensive to run and at Mm -hmm. the end of the day that's all people I think they'll really care about it's not what they they're obviously they care about their environmental impact but one of the big things is you know how much does this thing cost me how much does it cost to heat and cool my home because I know a lot of people will struggle with utility bills um I have friends in Texas who can pay you know $900 a month in electricity bills just to run the air conditioning system so yeah so i think if if i was looking to that i would be looking to you know try and pipe it into the buildings obviously you've got to have the correct levels of insulation and it's the best energy saving is the bit that you don't use at all so yes Mm -hmm. insulate the properties use shutters on the windows you know at night bring in the cool air overnight to cool the property down and then close the windows during the day sort of thing sorry that's Mm -hmm. a very long rambling answer but i I wasn't expecting the uh, if you were god question (laughs) (laughs) it's incredibly captivating and thought-provoking and i think if i were to ask the question to anybody, it would be someone like yourself. I, as I say, I've been very much involved in solar, a very sort of local scale. So if we're looking at, for example, Africa, when we're going out to Kenya later this year, if you we take a step back and we think about the telephone system, the telephone system in our cities are wired. There's copper wire from my house back to the telephone exchange, back to, and it will link to every, pretty much every house in the country. So via communicating down a copper wire, I'm actually, through some clever switching, my wire is actually connected to somebody else's house at the other end of the country. Now, mobile technology has revolutionized that. So if you went to a village in Africa that doesn't have a telephone network, they're never ever going to install one because there's no point in running all that wire because everybody's got mobiles. So you have to think in the world of solar and, and other renewable technologies, are you going to have a power station 100 miles away and then transmission lines across the countryside and transformers and then all in the States, you've got them all on those poles outside Mm -hmm. and wires going, are you going to do that? Or are you going to have solar panels either on the property with batteries or in the centre of the village and maybe a very small electrical connection or grid to to a a few properties around? So Mm -hmm. we have to think, is that sort of... um, 
is that sort of the, as, the, as the world progresses and everything becomes progressively more wireless and energy storage gets to be better, the way the world develops will be very different to the way if you went to, a, to, to London or to New York, you, all of those utilities are buried under the street. You don't see any of them. But I think if you were building New York now, there certainly wouldn't be a wired telephone network. My last question for you, Robert, as we approach the bookends is how you guys make money. How have you found the kind of most interesting or natural commercialization opportunity for solar? Do you license the IP to or sublicense it to local corporations and have them distribute and install throughout their customer base. What what does that look like today? That's actually very difficult for small companies like us. We are always looking for investors and partners and we seem to spend a lot of our lives bearing in mind we're engineers and we would rather be in the lab or the workshop than than the knocking <laughs> on the door of the investment. And there's this this awful what they affectionately call in the investment world the valley of death, which is the bit when you you've developed a new product, you've proven the concept and you can say, da-da, look, I can change the sun into cold. And now I need to start manufacturing and selling them. And then they all turn around and go, yeah, but you're not selling them now. So how can you prove to me that you're worth investing in? And you're going, well, just look, look here, <laughs> sun, cold, you know, air conditioning market, however many billion it is a year, billions a year, we could, if we're offering something of a similar price, but it doesn't have a utility bill attached to it, would you back us? And you, it takes a lot to find people with the imagination and the vision to say, actually, yeah, air conditioning without a utility bill attached to it, there's got to be. And so those are the people we're always looking for. We have small investors. We have benefited greatly from the UK government's R&D schemes, and they, they are very supportive. You go to them and say, I think I can turn the sun's energy into cold. And they'll go, well, okay, then here's some cash. Obviously, you have to match that with investment cash as well. But but so, so yes, yeah, so you can get to the point where you've got a product that's working. It's just you have to find that either industrial partner or you know, high net worth individual or investment company or alternatively a business that thinks we pay a fortune for cooling if we put some money into this we might be able to reduce that load so we're always looking for that mm. sort of partnership and then obviously we're there thinking there's an enormous if you drew a stripe around the middle of the world around the sort of north and south of the equator uh, and you say what well, all of these countries are going to need air conditioning. It's enormous. It's beyond anything that we can envisage the scale of manufacturing you would need to get to. But you know, as I say, we're scientists, we're engineers. We, we want to be developing the next new idea. It mm -hmm. takes a very different skill set to be able to say, okay, I see what you're building and you just need to produce a million of these a week <laughs> and uh, we can do that for you. Don't worry about a thing. So and it's, it is all about partnerships. You can, never, you can never really do all of these things on your own. So till now, we've had people, lovely people who can see our vision and can get excited and get behind it and have put some cash in the bank for us. We've had support from the UK government and the European Union to get us to where we are now. We're talking with a company in India who we're partnering up with to start the manufacturing process. We've got units on demonstration in Jacksonville, Florida, and we're looking there again, to find somebody who will kind of go, yeah, we can make those. <laughs> or here's some money, go and make them. So yeah, unfortunately, the whole COVID thing has slowed us, slowed us down. We would like to have been mm. over in Jacksonville and talking to, talking to the investment world, but obviously we're not allowed to travel. So 
that's Robert, where we're at. Robert, I got you. So we had an amazing woman on the show a couple of weeks ago. She heads up innovation at Train Technologies. Oh, so they yeah, were are lovely you fl- to talk to. Okay. Yes, yeah. You can't yes. stop so, a train. Yeah, if it, it, and they, they own Thermaking, they own American Standard Heating and AC. They're they are one of the kind of preeminent leaders in heating and cooling in the world. Yeah. So, and well, she if, is the person that helps loop in inventors into their ecosystem. If so, you would make an introduction for us, that 100%. would be amazing. Thank you. <laughs> right after this, I will tee that up. Um, Robert, I, I have to ask you. Actually, we're couple more questions here, but you seem like a remarkably happy soul. And I know this is totally off topic, but I never I, I never want to be overly assumptive and all these things, but you just, it feels, you know, I, can, I don't know, I just feel it in my bones that you get great joy from building and engineering new thing, things into life. What are, my, my question for you, because I'm rambling here is, is my assessment true? And if so, what is the primary driver of that feeling or that outlook on life? When you think up a new idea, I believe it releases dopamine. <laughs> so, and being able to get enthusiastic and talk to people and develop ideas, because when I'm not solar polaring, I uh, mentor through the Prince's Trust in London, young people in London who are starting their own businesses and things like that. So everywhere, soccer coaching to children's homes to just, and just that interaction with people when you can start adding new ideas to to something or taking an idea and just saying actually couldn't you do this with it or it would be cool if we did that and when you get into that process kind of time stops still and all of a sudden you realize that it's three or four hours later and you're still scribbling on whiteboards and notebooks and you come away and you think wow blimey that was four hours (laughs) when you get into that especially when you meet like-minded people who love that whole process and uh, and you know you get told off for it sometimes you're supposed to go look you're supposed to charge people money for fixing problems you know (laughs) you're not supposed to just listen to it and go oh actually if you did it like this that would (laughs) I would save you money. You get a kick. That's how you make your living. You're supposed to. But yeah, I mean, just that the whole process is just fantastic. And as I say, uh, but also when you meet craftsmen, people who are skilled metal workers and glass workers and artisans and people who, and you just look at what they do and how skilled they are. And when you can, you get that sort of good interaction where you can say to somebody and to the point of electronics as well, if you want to create an animation or an infographic or something, when you get that sort of fantastic interaction with somebody who gets you and you can, and you, you know, can go, so this is what you mean? And you go, yes, that's exactly what I mean. It's that, that, uh, that side of things is just a, a brilliant process. And it is very addictive. Once you've got started, it's very hard to stop. Wow. My last question for you, and I ask this of every guest, is around this notion of the idea graveyard, which I believe you you probably have plenty. And the question is this, what is one idea that you would love to work on if you had the time to do so, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard? It's not getting my full attention, but I would like to bring back solar airships airships and having them solar powered so i think airships are obviously the pollution from airliners and things like this are is just enormously damaging to the environment but we need it for commerce and people getting around the place but if you could just take that little bit longer to get there fly a little bit lower have the windows open if it took you a couple of hours rather than 30 minutes of flying but didn't impact the environment and actually you could as i say have the window open and watch the world go by beneath you i think that would be uh, just a fantastic thing to do robert uh, i would love to roll out the red carpet are there any final call to actions 
hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. To all the people who would love to have solar cooling, we have a demonstration system in Jacksonville, Florida. We're looking for people to partner with us to, if you could bend metal pipes and weld them together, then get in contact if you've got money burning a hole in your pocket and you're contemplating buying a new Rolls Royce and you think actually I could put that money to to saving the developing world's farmers for the price of a Rolls Royce we could actually save an awful lot of people's lives so if you've got some spare cash you just want to be involved you want to want to sell this idea you're whatever we would love to hear from you and how exactly can people find you or contact you? Our website is www.solar-polar.co.uk. And if you want to send to info at solar-polar.co.uk, that will pop up on my desk. But I, I won't give you my personal one because it, it also comes up on my colleagues' one as well. So if I happen to be away from my computer or, or I'm doing something, then everybody gets to see those emails and we can be sure that somebody will have replied to you. So, Robert, yeah. you have been seriously some of the most refreshing commentary and conversation I've had in a while. So thank you. Congrats on kind of a, a lifetime of success and amazing progress in this field. And I can't wait to connect you with Train right after this conversation. And we'll have to do a round two once uh, Solar Polar starts becoming the kind of de facto leading brand in the US. I just want a little hat tip in a second episode, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. No, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And if we're in New York on our way down to Florida or something, we'll have to stick our head round the door and uh, see you, meet you in person, so to speak. And Sounds happy to great. chat anytime. Awesome. Have a good day, Robert. You too. Take Hey there. You made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at peterA11 or email us hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again, and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.